When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss US President Joe Biden's momentous visit to Kyiv. Look at the stories that came out of the Munich Security Conference. We deep dive into the state of the war across Ukraine's east. And we speak to a former Belarusian diplomat, Pavel Slunkin, about his experiences in 2015 at Minsk, and his thoughts on the impact of the invasion on Alexander Lukashenko and Belarus as a whole. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 20th of February, day 362. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley, our Defence Editor Daniel Sheridan, and our guest is Policy Analyst, Visiting Fellow at the European Council for Foreign Relations and former Belarusian diplomat Pavel Slonkin. I started by asking Dom to sum up the main events of the day. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So the big story of the day is President uh, Joe Biden. He's just left about an hour ago. Yeah, an hour and a minute ago. Um, just left Kiev. Uh, a lightning visit there. Surprise visit-ish. Was it a surprise? We knew he was going to Poland this week. So a quick detour was always likely. However, you know, nothing was ever confirmed in advance. And actually, John Hudson of the Washington Post has literally just tweeted that uh, Jake Sullivan, who's the um, the National Security Advisor... Uh, he said that the White House had told the Kremlin in advance that Biden was going to go to Kiev. Um, Jake Sullivan said, we did notify the Russians that President Biden would be travelling. We did some hours before his departure for deconfliction purposes. He went on to say it's uh, unprecedented in modern times to have a US president visit a country at war. Um, sorry, this is John Hudson speaking. Um, to visit a country at war when the US military doesn't have control of the of the critical infrastructure and basically the uh, you know the safety of the whole area um Sullivan called it an inherently risky undertaking that sent an unmistakable message of US support uh to Ukraine so really interesting stuff there we'll we'll dig into that in a minute and the the big the big moving part over the weekend was the Munich security conference which uh, Danielle's going to speak about 
I will come back later with some um, battlefield updates from, from around the Donbass. It's been, there's been quite a lot of movement there, but I'll just let Danielle come in now. Thanks very much, Dom. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you were in Munich over the weekend. What did you see? What stories were you reporting on there? Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Um, as you mentioned, I attended the Munich Security Conference, which um, it was just a fascinating event to attend because of this time last year. It was, you know, whether or not Russia was going to invade Ukraine, Um and there was kind of this hesitation um, whether to, to call them out, whether to say Putin was going to go for it. People were still ho- hoping that they wouldn't. I think Zelensky, President Zelensky, even attended in person, and um, and lo and behold, um, they did invade. So there was this kind of really, uh, you know, it just felt very poignant this year, um, a year on from from almost to the day of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and. Um, it was felt very acutely. Um, you know, the the chairman of the Munich Security Conference, Christoph, um, who's getting I'm sorry if I pronounce his name wrong, um, he became very emotional um at the end of his opening remarks and um was holding back tears when he introduced a musician to play um a piece of music to commemorate the victims of this illegal invasion. Um, and pretty much throughout most of the uh, speeches that were given, they were really um, kind of peppered with emotion and genuine, you know, heartfelt um, support from these top diplomats. Um, you know, Kamala Harris, when she addressed the audience on Saturday, DP of the US, um, she referenced Butcher twice, speaking of how the world saw these images that showed the atrocities Russia had committed. Um, she spoke of people that had been butchered by Putin's regime, of, of those that had been murdered. Um, and it was just incredibly striking to see these world leaders talk about the kind of the real shock, the shock of what Putin has done, whilst also be talking about you know, diplomacy and politics and what we can do to bring an end to to this terrible invasion. Thanks very much for that, Danny. Um, can I just ask about one of your stories here? Um, that Rishi Sunak must put Britain on a war footing and boost defence spending. This is coming from a senior Whitehall source. Uh, tell us about that. What What's the story there? So there was a real sense among people I was speaking to in Munich that the UK is risking depleting its own resources as it continues to take from its own stock to help Ukraine and, and its own dwindling stock, I might add, and um, to help Ukraine and not replenish it. So Macron, when he gives to Ukraine, it's not coming out of his own military's uh, stockpiles. It, it's something separate to that. And some of the diplomats I was speaking to were saying, why aren't we responding to helping Ukraine in the way that the French are? That seems like the most sensible way. And obviously, the spring budget is around the corner. And there's a real concern that Rishi Sunak is not going to increase uh, defence spending in line with inflation. And 
look around European NATO nations. I mean, every Poland is doubling its defence spend to four percent. Um, Estonia, I think, has gone up to three percent. Everyone is putting themselves on this, you know, war footing. They're recognising, as I think um, I quoted this diplomat in um, my piece, that that they see what's coming downstream and it's not pleasant and we need to be investing more in the defense of the realm putting money into the military ensuring that we've got the capabilities that would protect us um if something worse happens in the years to come um and one of the people i was speaking to made a very kind of poignant um remark about Putin now, this war is not over and Putin is is regrouping. He will be putting more money into his resources. He will be ensuring that his military gets better and he is on a war footing. And therefore, if, if, if this dictator is on a war footing, we should all be on that footing. And can I just ask you about one more story you've written up? Um this is from a remark from Lindsey Graham, the Republican senator for South Carolina, who said that Ukrainian pilots should be trained on F-16. These are, these are the jets from today. And I thought that was very interesting because it showed us some of the uh, bipartisanship uh, in the US. Um, what was your story there? Yeah, so um, Lindsey Graham gave an interview yesterday and he was, it was actually um, quite a, an emotionally charged interview. So he was talking about the need to train fighter pilots uh, and saying it needs to start from now. It needs to start today. We can't be saying this is something we're going to do and then kicking it into the long grass. I mean, Rishi Sunak announced when Zelensky was in the UK last week that the UK would start training Ukrainian pilots to NATO standard um, levels of flying, but no date has been given. Um, and I think that is a, a recurrent theme. We might promise these things, but we aren't actually giving a definitive timescale of when we're going to see it implemented. And Lindsey Graham was just pushing and saying right now is when we should be starting and also he um was quite complimentary of Kamala Harris and and saying he agreed with a lot of her sentiment and he made this comment about you know what is more what 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 is more kind of stark than the VP talking about war crimes that have been committed by a Russian president in Germany, like he was saying, this is a symbolic moment and we just have to act now. And we can't say we'll do it in, in you know, next month, whatever. Like it, it needs to start with a sense of urgency. And, and Zelensky has pressed this theme of urgency as well. I think the word was speed that he kept using when he gave his address, obviously by um, video camera to the delegates gathered. And um, in Brussels last week, the NATO Secretary General kept on saying we need to work with speed and urgency. So this is a really big theme now um, that seems to be shifting through. And I do think Sunak, to his credit, is getting there. He, in, When he spoke at the conference, he did say that they would be delivering um, weapons much quicker than the UK was doing so at the start of the year. Um you know, he, he spoke of wanting to double down on this initiative. Um, but I think one of the big takeaways for me was was this sense of urgency and speed and it really not time for people to wrestle their laurels and we just need to to really go at this with throw everything that we have that we can 
at Putin's aggression. Thank you very much, Danny, for that. Is there anything more from you on uh, Munich Security Conference or shall I go to Dom Nichols? I mean, I just um, say my last point is it was really amazing to see so many people gathered and to to really get a sense of how passionate people felt about the war in Ukraine. And I just hope that um, these aren't kind of empty words and that, you know, NATO nations really do continue to, to up their game, as it were, in its support and help for Ukraine. Well, thank you very much, Danny, for joining us. Um, it's great to hear you. Great to have you back on the podcast. And thank you very much for, for your reports there. Dom Nichols, can I turn to you? Um, what are the latest updates, the military updates from Ukraine? What would you like to talk us through? Yeah, sure. We're going to come back to Munich a bit later because there's lots more to say there. Um, but on the on the front, so let's have a look. So the Russian offensive is continuing. So I think I'm not the only one here. You know, many other commentators have said that this much vaunted spring offensive is underway. I, I happen to think that's correct. I think Russia's got nothing left in the locker, really, other than um, personnel. And that's why we see these these tactics that they're employing, been described as human wave tactics by Ben Wallace, Defence Secretary. So I don't think we should say, no, no, this, this, is, just, this is just normal. And actually, the offensive is coming when they get all the tanks out and all the rest. Of it. I don't think they've got any tanks left. So I think this is the, the offensive underway. So let's have, a, let's have a look at it and give, bear with me for a minute if we may. So for those that are unfamiliar with the, the geography of Ukraine, the Donbass, the Donetsk uh, coal basin, Don, the Donbass, is the big bulgy bit in the east of the country that sticks right out into, into Russia. Now, the, made up of two uh, regions, two counties, two oblasts, if you like, uh, two oblasts in um, Ukrainian terminology, the Luhansk and Donetsk oblast. Luhansk to the north, which is almost totally under Russian control, and Donetsk to the south and southwest, which is much less so. Much less of that is controlled by Russia um, at the moment. So going north to south, there's three three main towns I want to focus on. So you've got Kremina, which is about 75 kilometres northwest of Luhansk, the big the big city in Luhansk Oblast. Uh, it's about 100 k's north-northeast of, of Donetsk. It's, it's essentially the limit that Ukraine got to in their massive charge east out of Kharkiv last autumn. Now that area, Kremina, it's been long fought over. Ukraine wants to take it because it is a, a town on a major logistical route, north-south running a road that runs north, or comes out of Russia to the north, down into the Donbass. So it's a major resupply route for Russia. Ukraine wants to take that road and take Kremina, which is the kind of big town on the road, to, to absolutely sever that, that artery. Russia knows that and, and hence has had its VDV, the Russian airborne forces, the better trained, better equipped uh, forces there um, in recent months. Now, they've achieved very limited success, Russia. They were trying, obviously trying to push push west. They've got, um, they're a little bit to the west of the, of the town of Crimea itself, which is an area that's heavily forested. And that sl- just slows down all sorts of, all, all, all kind of um, uh, military movement. It's very, very difficult to fight um, to fight in in wooded areas, forest, forestry areas, you know, it's difficult to move vehicles through there. Personnel, you can't see each other, so it's very difficult to do anything there. So that's that's where the the line has seem seemingly settled at the moment in uh, around Crimea to the north. Now the other, the next axis that Russia's pushing on in this offensive is Bakhmut. So let's go. Uh, so Bakhmut, we're now 50 k's about south southwest of Crimea on a direct line down between Crimea and uh, and Donetsk city. Now, Bakhmut, a, a town of very limited operational significance, it really 
isn't isn't on the way to anywhere it doesn't hold anything it's not it's not hugely tactically important the wagner group the, the private military company the, the mercenary group has been smashing its head against bakhmut for months it has had some success to the north and the south of the town it's not yet encircled but it's looking as if ukraine will cede that ground um it, i mean you, you never want to go backwards as a as an army but it has come at such cost for Russia that the, the thinking is that, that Ukraine and the defenders are generally defenders generally take fewer casualties than those than attackers. You're better dug in. You have better prepared positions attacking. You have to expose yourself and cover ground to go and to go and take the enemy positions. So Russia has has lost thousands of people trying to take Bakhmut, and it looks as if Ukraine are going to slowly move backwards and, and make them pay a very heavy price for every uh, every inch gained. And then you've got the town of Vuladar. So we're now, let's go another 50k southwest of Donetsk city itself. Um, so we're right down in the south of the Donbass here. And this, is, uh, this was fought over by regular Russian forces with lots of conscripts and mobilised uh, people going in there after those original forces were heavily depleted. The terrain outside of Vuladar, so outside the actual urban area itself of, of the town, is very open. Which means it's good. It's good tank country, if you like. But it means you've got very good fields of view. So, as a, a soldier with an anti-tank guided weapon, you can see for hundreds of meters, if not kilometers. So, yes, it's good for tanks to, to speed across, but you can see them coming. Plus, because it's good for tanks, it's been heavily mined, and it's been covered by all sorts of Ukrainian units. So, it's, there's a lattice work of defence there, and Russia have been mauled around Vuladar. The the, the regular forces. Um, have been absolutely smashed up. And, and today's Defence Intelligence report says that the casualties there are um, high and specifically they what you, British Defence Intelligence call the elite 155th and 40th Naval Inf- Infantry Brigades have sustained very high losses in Vuladar and are likely combat ineffective. So when you're combat ineffective, it means you're not necessarily... Going backwards, you haven't been completely deleted, but you, you no way are you going forward, and you need you need a massive um, resurgence of, of personnel, equipment, rest, etc., etc., to be able to do anything. So, overall, this this um, this offensive in the Donbass, I think, is is ongoing. Um, I don't think Russia's got much left in the locker. They've probably got some reserves. You need reserves to exploit success or to plug a sudden hole if the enemy are breaking through. So if Russia have got any reserve units in, and tanks and armoured personnel carriers and what have you, they, they would be holding some of those in reserve. I, I don't know if they've got them. If they have, they haven't really committed them yet, partly because, well, firstly, Ukraine haven't made a breakthrough. They're not, I don't think they're necessarily trying to right now. I think they're just trying to hold the line. But secondly, Russia haven't made a massive breakthrough that they can, they can reinforce, as I say. So I don't think there's, there's much of a reserve. And if, if there is, it, it's not, not done anything recently. Um, and we think, I think that this is going to be the pattern for a, for a while now. I don't think there's going to be much change in the line um, unless and until Russia goes through another round of mobilisation and just gets dozens, tens of thousands more troops to just to swamp the area or Russia develops the ability to use combined arms warfare, tanks and infantry and all the other bits and pieces working together rather than just getting up and running at the at the Ukrainians. Or conversely, if Ukraine are able to to ingest all the Western aid, the tanks and the air defence and artillery and all the rest of it, and they're able to make a breakthrough. So I think what's happening here is Russia are trying to 
push with what they've got and all they've got is manpower um, in a race to try and try and break that line before the summer when the ground is is better to move because we're about to come out of the the nice hard frozen ground of winter we're going to go through a few weeks of the the thick cloying mud the rasputitsa when when uh, you, you come out of um, you come out of winter and, and the ground just turns to mush and not a lot happens then until it hardens up again in summer and that's when i think ukraine will be in a much better position to to do anything but for now i think it's um i think it's not going anywhere anywhere very quickly and just one final point on this michael kaufman who's a security analyst at the the us uh, based think tank cna uh, follow him on twitter really good really good comments on this he is saying that what he suggests is happening is that we had russia had, had general sorovkin in charge and he went in with the idea of stabilizing the russian lines and he adopted a much more defensive strategy to buy time to rebuild the force and preferred to to defend he was the architect of the uh, of the withdrawal from Hezon to the southwest, so he was much more thinking, come back, reconstitute, hold the line, prevent any Ukrainian offensive, and then push forward in the summer when we're better better able to do so. It looks as if he lost out to Gerasimov, General Gerasimov, um, and Putin was demanding success. He needs to, he wants to have a success by this Friday, but the, the anniversary of the the start of this phase of the war. So Gerasimov was sent in to shake things up and to and to get that success. But Gerasimov is only all he's had is manpower to do that. He's not been able to to use all the other parts of the military that either aren't there or or simply haven't been built or trained properly. So Gerasimov's pushing ahead with this this very manpower intensive strategy, artillery led and then personnel following it up to try and exploit any any gaps and and has has yielded some gains around Bakhmut, as I said. Um, but really not going anywhere um, very fast. And what that is doing is it's exhausting what few troops they have. And Ukraine, are, I think, are, are hoping, planning. Uh, I was once told if the word hope enters your plan uh, at any point, you haven't planned enough. So I would suggest that Ukraine are, are planning to hold on until they get all the Western kit and they've trained more of their own personnel and they're able to to make their own advance to the East. So a long-winded way of of, of, where, of sort of coming back to where we are, but it's been a little while since we've done a, a deep dive into the Donbass and a bit of geography. Um, but yeah, I think, that, I think that's where we are and that's what's been happening over the weekend. Thanks very much, uh, Dom. Francis Sternley, before we come to our guest, Pavel, Pavel, thank you very much for, for waiting on us. Pa- Francis, I imagine you have some reflections on this morning's visit of President Biden to, uh, to Kiev. Well, thank you, David. Yes, I do. I mean, it is an extraordinary visit. And I think it is important just to underline quite how extraordinary this is. This is the first visit of a US president to Ukraine in 15 years. I was watching just before we came on air, I was watching footage of the uh, walkabout with President Zelensky and President Biden. And there were air raid sirens sounding throughout the city as they were strolling about. So this is exceptionally rare, as, as Don was saying earlier on you don't usually have the most powerful man in the world, the most the, the figurehead of democracy going to somewhere where it's an active war zone. It's so I think it's just important to stress that this is a hugely significant moment and one that is, of course, being uh, cheered to the rafters by U- Ukrainians this morning. I thought I'd just pick out a few of the remarks by President Biden uh, because they were, as I say, uh, pretty extraordinary. I'm here to show our unwavering support for the nation's independence, sovereignty and territorial integrity. One year later, Kiev stands and Ukraine stands 
democracy stands. I I don't think you can get a clearer articulation of what President Biden thinks is at stake in Ukraine. But I also wanted to talk as well about the significance of the date, because it is actually the anniversary, of course, of the 2014 Maidan revolution, those deadly clashes between protesters and state forces in Kyiv that culminated in the ousting of uh, President uh, Yanukovych and the return of the 2004 constitution. This is a hugely symbolic day in Ukraine's battle for democracy and for sovereignty. And that is not being missed by Ukrainian interpreters of the significance of this date as well. Now, you spoke earlier on, David, about the Sort of seeming bipartisanship of the Republican Party, and I, uh, with regard to Biden's visit, and I think it's true that there are some positive signs from the very senior figures of the Republican Party on the F-16s. But I think it's also important to contextualise this in a way of that it's quite possible that the Republicans are actually more likely criticising Biden for not doing enough and not sending the F-16. So rather than this being sort of representative of bipartisan support, it is actually a sort of thinly veiled criticism of President Biden's actions on Ukraine. But nonetheless, it's a good problem for Ukraine to have if you have senior Republicans saying do more to the Democratic Party. But I think it is important to caveat that with continuing anxiety amongst Ukraine supporters that the Republican Party, whilst you do have senior figures like Mitch McConnell and others cheering Ukraine to the rafters, you have others who are, of course, far more critical about this idea of of a blank check support for Ukraine, not least, of course, President Trump. And if he were to become president again, then I think there is a huge anxiety about what that would mean. And of course, I'm sure that Russia are looking at this Biden visit and thinking long, long term and are saying, well, actually, it doesn't really matter uh, what Biden says, because in the long term, our prospects may well be strengthened by a resurgent Republican Party and, of course, war fatigue. And obviously, what another central thrust of this visit is an attempt to undermine the argument that war fatigue is a phenomenon that we are seeing, that actually we are seeing here uh, that Western support and Western resolve for Ukraine is strengthened. And if anything, is harder now than it was when the war began. And there is indeed noticeable evidence that that is the case. Just staying on the US, though, for one other thing, I was very struck by some remarks that were leaked by Anthony Blinken on Friday in a conversation that he had with some experts on foreign affairs, where he seemed to suggest that for Uh, Putin, Crimea would be a red line. And even if he didn't articulate it in this way, it was sort of suggestive that there was great hesitancy within the administration with regard to supporting Ukraine in taking back Crimea. Now, he didn't say it, as I say, explicitly like that, but there is conversations that that is how it is being interpreted. And that's leading to some anxiety. So whilst we are, of course, talking today about the the broad support in the United States for Ukraine's cause. I think it's important to throw in a few caveats in there that actually could be fundamental later down the line. One last thing I wanted to talk about, though, in the question of bipartisanship, and I'll have a few updates later after our guest as well in other areas. But um, Danielle was talking earlier on about Rishi Sunak's vows, and uh, he has, of course, spoken much about the importance of training F-16 pilots. And in this area, Britain is, I think, leading really above the United States in terms of training F-16 pilots and emphasising the importance of that. But here, too, in Britain, the bipartisanship continues on the issue of Ukraine. I think this is a definite bipartisanship um, in, in, in contrast, perhaps, to 
to the more um, partisan nature of the of the debates within the United States, because Sir Keir Starmer went to uh, Ukraine on Thursday in his visit to the uh, first visit to, to to Kiev, and I was just struck by his remarks about how. Uh, it's vital that if he were to become the prime minister here in Britain, that the support for Ukraine remained the same. And he also was very keen to underline the evidence of the atrocities. And he said there is, has to be justice in The Hague and there has to be proper reparation in the rebuilding of Ukraine. So quite striking there in terms of observations on this issue of war crimes. And I will come back to those later because there were some quite interesting remarks, too, from Vice President Camilla Harris. But I'll pause there. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Uh, well, Pavel Slunkin, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Pavel, we won't waste any time introducing you again. So can you just talk to us about your career and, and, and your life in Belarus and now Ukraine? Sure, David. Thank you for inviting me. Well, starting talking about Belarus, maybe I will give you a bit of broad context, just because the audience can be not be enough familiar with, with the situation in, in Belarus. Uh, I and about my professional career, so it, it matters. Uh, I was six years old when Lukashenko was democratically elected in Belarus, so he enjoyed uh, popularity. And in several months, like eight months in one year, he already usurped the power and became the authoritarian leader. Uh, so he rewrote the constitution. Uh, I was never supporting him. Uh, I never, never liked uh, the way he rules the country. But the more, the more we grew up, uh, me and my friends, the, the more time he has been in power. Uh, then I uh, joined uh, the university and, and started to learn international relations because I have been always interested in, in them, expecting that maybe when I graduate, he will already leave. But this didn't happen. When I uh, was... 18 years old, I think, I, I first time went on protests uh, after the presidential elections in 2010 when he stole elections. This is not the first time in 2020 when he steals elections. He has been doing this all the time since 1994. Uh, and th- they were cracked down. So the, what we are now observing in Belarus, it already happened, uh, maybe in a demo version, uh, kind of a demo version in, in, in previous rounds of Belarusian history. And my friends, my colleagues, uh, they, the other students, they either were being arrested or they left the country, just understanding that there is no good perspective there. Um, and the sanctions were not imposed. The, 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 the hard sanctions were not imposed on Lukashenko. So Belarus was kept like, okay, uh, we can do something with this, so let's just ignore it. Uh, and in 2012, in 2013, Lukashenko has been trying to reproach again with the European Union because he didn't like the uh, increasing dependence on Russia. And when Russia occupied and annexed Crimea, he tried to turn back to, to the West, expecting to uh, grow his political influence in the country and not to allow Russia to do the same thing with Belarus like it did uh, with uh, Ukrainian territory and with uh, Crimea. So he limited repression and he started to uh, uh, be extremely interested in, in, in the dialogue with the West. And uh, I saw it as a positive scenario, as a positive development for the country that has been losing all the time uh, its time uh, for, for, for the better foreign policy, for the better internal policies. Lukashenko uh, released political prisoners and he started a kind of a 
pro-liberal uh, reforms in economy and in, in, in foreign policy and internal policy just because he understood that the West won't cooperate with him if he continues repressing the people. And this time I was invited to the foreign ministry again, and, and I agreed just because I think that it would be a great idea if I can uh, fight the regime on streets, if we can beat it uh, from there. So why not trying to uh, make a move to, to give it a right move uh, away from Moscow and maybe expecting that the time will come and we will be having a better chance to, to change the country uh, towards the democratic uh, rule. And the changes that I've been talking about, they have been happening since 2014 till 2020. The, the Belarus uh, uh, picture of, of the society has changed a lot. We had a lot of NGOs uh, independent from the country, the independent media, they not only followed the propaganda or tried to fight the propaganda stories, they have been forming the mood of the society. So the society in the seven years has transformed much and became pretty strong, one independent one, and wanted uh, to promote changes more and more. And when, and, and, and when, election 2020 happened, uh, Lukashenko saw it. Uh, all those millions of people that you saw on streets uh, of Belarusian cities is the result of this kind of liberal times when people were not beaten for going streets, uh, when they were not arrested for uh, criticizing the government publicly. There, there were even some uh, political analysts that could go on Belarusian TV and, 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 and say things that were critical to the government. But in 2020, Lukashenko saw how dangerous it is for him. So he cracked down the, the protest. And uh, we, again, first time since 2015, we uh, got uh, political prisoners. And this was the red line for me. I mean, I was helping, I, I was hoping to have a better Belarus, better future for my country. But I promised myself when I joined the MFA that I would never cross my principles. And in 2020, they wanted me to do so. So I just said no. I didn't want even to resign. I was... Uh, staying inside the MFA and supporting people that were protesting on streets. I was ignoring the demands, the orders that they were given to me, and I was criticizing the government from inside the foreign ministry. And in one month, they, they fired me, uh, obviously. And in several months, I had to flee my country just because of the risk of my arrest. And since October 2020, I have been with ECFR, with the European Council on Foreign Relations, covering mostly the topics of Belarusian foreign and internal policies. Well, thank you for that introduction, Pavel. There's a lot to get into there. Um, can you take us back to 2015? You were at the negotiations between Putin, Poroshenko, Hollande, Merkel and Lukashenko. Can you tell us about that, those days? Um, and you, you were working with the Ukrainian delegation there. Um, to talk us through what you saw. Yeah, it was kind of surprising. Uh, we received the information that the Norman summit, Normandy summit will happen in Minsk 40 Five hours uh, before uh, the delegations were expected to come to Minsk. So this was extremely surprising. And, and yes, I, I, I worked with the Ukrainian delegation. We had those two days to prepare the visit uh, organizationally and, and, and with, with all this diplomatic protocol stuff. Uh, and nobody knew anything. I mean, uh, we were doing this for the first time. And it was the same surprise, not only for Belarus, but for my colleagues in Germany, France, Russia and Ukraine. So nobody knew what would be happening and 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 how should it look like uh but then yeah we we were not sleeping those two days uh, and 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 finally this day came uh we 
uh, welcome the delegation inside uh, in, in Belarus inside this Palace of Independence. Uh, yeah, and and this was pretty interesting story. I already felt from inside that this is something something big is already happening. Uh, I mentioned it in my Twitter thread uh, that that Putin, as as usually, he came late. Uh, so the uh, delegations of France, Germany, Ukraine, they were waiting him in, in the room, and uh, I already count that the that the negotiations already started even even before Putin arrived. Um, then he arrived, and then decided. Decided, the, the, the letters, they decided not to go to the room where they were expected to hold negotiations. They just stayed, they just stayed in the room where they were expected just to drink coffee and have a short talk. Uh, but they liked the room and they stayed there. Uh, and it took them several hours uh so they they crushed the 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 program of of the meeting just from the beginning they were expected to go for the picture uh taking shooting a, a, a protocol picture and they never came uh, and only they, they came only uh in three or four hours maybe uh to do so uh, and yeah, and I mentioned it in my thread that uh, the, 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 the the funny story happened with uh, with Oland who uh I, this is my subjective, uh, my personal feelings. I, 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 when I analyzed how how he was, what he was doing there, I, 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 I really saw that he was kind of feeling that he doesn't know what he, he, he was doing there. He was just following Angela Merkel and never being allowed or, or uh, active, or never initiated any any kind of a discussion. So he just followed Angela Merkel's and, and her instructions. And when they came out of this room where the negotiations started, uh, uh, Lukashenko suggested to have a lunch uh, as it was planned uh, to the program. And, and, and Oland uh, said that, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's go. And, and Angela Merkel said, no, no, we have to work, uh, and, and they stayed uh, stayed working. They they continued working there. The negotiations lasted seventeen hours, uh, and I, I think that we analyzed them if there were a kind of this negotiations somewhere in Europe since uh, World War Two, and I, I didn't find any. Uh, so they they were the longest ones perhaps in in the modern European history. Uh, there were so many journalists and people uh, there in, in the delegations that didn't expect that the negotiations would take that long. So the people were just sleeping on the floor just because there were not enough uh, chairs there inside the palace. Nobody expected that uh, uh, we would need to stay there for, for the whole night. Uh, and finally, when it was already... I don't know, 20, uh, 12 a.m. or even 2 p.m. Uh, the next day, they uh, talked to the media and said that they signed the Minsk agreement. So finally they had it uh, and that they need to uh, uh, receive an approval from those separatist uh, guys who had who have uh, have been having their own negotiations in a separate place, uh, also in Minsk, where uh, Kuchma, uh, the former president of Ukraine, was represented unofficially Ukraine, and he talked uh, to those uh, guys, uh, uh, separatist guys in of this eastern parts uh, of Ukraine. And so even when uh, Merkel, Hollande, Putin and uh, Poroshenko agreed on Minsk agreement, they still, Putin made them uh, wait until all the separatist guys approve the agreement that they have been working on uh, through all this night. 
and uh, they received an approval in uh, around one hour, maybe. And then finally, it was uh, it, it was done. They gave a press conference, and then they left. Uh, I remember how exhausted Poroshenko was. Uh, I, I talked to the, my colleagues from the Ukrainian delegation. They were saying that he had no sleep the night before the talks. And uh, then the talks he was he was negotiating all night, and um, when the negotiations ended, he, Hollande, and Merkel they uh, traveled to Brussels to participate in EU summit uh, on the level of head of states. Uh, so this was uh, the hard times for 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 him because the Balsiva. Uh, one of the Ukrainian cities, they, it was heavily attacked those days, and he was in a constant communication with his generals uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and this was, again, part of uh, Putin's uh, manipulative tactics. He was uh, ordering, attacking, heavily attacking the city just to blackmail uh, Poroshenko and Merkel on the land, making them for given concessions. And the one thing that I also mentioned in my Twitter thread is that uh, Putin was only the only guy that had uh, a room, a special room with a bed inside the palace. So he uh, sometimes uh, left the room and enjoyed uh, 15, 20, 30 minutes of sleep. Uh, so he was tired and then he came back fresh. While uh, Oland, Poroshenko and uh, Merkel didn't have this chance, their rooms, their uh, uh, places where, where they stayed were uh, far, from, from, far from the palace. So they couldn't just leave the, the negotiations for uh, half an hour and then came, uh, come back. Uh, this is a brief overview of uh, that night. Uh, I don't know if you have any questions, please feel free to, to. Well, maybe we'll come back to that later. But thank you very much for taking us sort of inside the room to 2015. It feels like a lot has changed since then. Could we zoom out a little bit? I, I wanted to get your perspective on Belarus's involvement or its non-involvement in, in the invasion so far. Um, could you give us an insight into Lukashenko's thinking right now and just describe your feelings about how Belarus, what Belarus has done in the past year? Yeah, this all has started in 2020 when Lukashenko lost elections and this uh, neutral or balanced foreign policy it ended when then sanctions were imposed on him, when he stole elections. And the only pillar, uh, or I would say his only ally, foreign ally that he has, uh, is Putin. So Putin saved him in 2020. And of course, Lukashenko understands this, that his political survival depends very much on whether Putin likes him or not. So he had cut off all his contacts with the West, or almost all of them. Uh, he brought back, uh, I don't know, totalitarian repression in the country. We have thousands of political pris uh, prisoners in the country. Um, and the dependence of Lukashenko's regime on Moscow has only been increasing since 2020. I think that this is part of the reason why he took a different stance on uh, Russia's invasion. In 2014, as I told you before, he took a pretty neutral stance when he didn't recognize the annexation of Crimea. He supported the territorial integrity of Ukraine because he had and he felt safe and secure in, in the Belarus. He knew that he 
Han, uh, he can uh, deal with, with the political stability with, with his own uh, uh, political services, and he's, he was pretty popular, uh, legitimate for, for the Belarusian um, people those, those days. While now, in 2022, when Russia invaded, he already couldn't, I say, I, I think that he couldn't refuse to participate in it. Uh, and that's why his role is completely different from the one he played uh, nine years ago. Um, I also sometimes read uh, this narrative from uh, Western intelligence services, from Western media, and even sometimes from Ukrainian media and Ukrainian uh, intelligence services that Moscow is pushing Lukashenko to send his army to Ukraine, which is absolutely misleading. I uh, I don't think that this is something that is really happening. Uh, when we analyze uh, the relations between Lukashenko and Russia, I see only a huge support that is coming from Putin to Lukashenko. So when we analyze economic relations, we see that Russia helps uh, Lukashenko to bypass all the economic sanctions, and they were that, and they are the toughest economic sanctions that were imposed on Lukashenko's regime uh, since uh, its existence. Uh, and, 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 and Russia helps. Uh, it provides the whole infrastructure from railway to seaports to bypass those sanctions, which uh, lets Lukashenko to keep his billions of, of dollars uh, coming into the, the budget of, of the country. Uh, he also, I mean, Russia, Putin, they also keep the lowest price for the Belarusian economy and natural gas and oil. So Lukashenko keeps uh, enjoying the special uh, conditions of economic uh, cooperation with, with, with Russia. Um, and uh, if we would think of Putin pressuring Lukashenko, we would obviously see at least some indicator that would show it. And now all the indicators are showing that they are both happy with the participation and with the role of Belarus and, and, and Lukashenko's regime in, in, in this war in Ukraine. Because since the beginning, since the invasion, uh, Lukashenko provided uh, Russia with everything it needed, with all military and civil infrastructure from railway to airfields uh, where uh, Russian troops are stationed. Uh, the mobilize, mobilized guys, uh, they come to Belarus and they are trained there. They are treated in Belarusian hospitals. Russian military, uh, they uh, shell Ukrainian cities, uh, Ukrainian infrastructure uh, from the territory of Belarus. Um, and if I imagine what would happen if Belarus would send his army to Ukraine, uh, I think that they would lose everything. The safe place from where Putin can attack, can have this shortest route to capture, to try again to capture Kiev, to pose under threat all these military, civil and facilities that are extremely important for, for Putin. Because uh, even... Uh, the factories, they work for uh, Russian invasion, the, the, the facilities, I mean, the industry of Belarusian industry, it, it works for uh, Russian invasion. They send ammunition, they send tanks, they send BMPs to Russia, uh, which is then sent to, to, uh, to Ukraine. And while the Belarusian army, it is an uh, unprofessional one. So only 15% of it is professional. So it, it means that only 10 to 15,000 uh, soldiers professional soldiers that know how to do war can be sent to Ukraine, which obviously wouldn't break the status quo. 
they they won't uh, bring a decisive moment to 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 the war while make uh while this move will will give a lot of the risk for their whole campaign uh so i think that uh this is their joint decision of putin of lukashenko of their role that lukashenko now plays for for the invasion they don't think that participation of belarusian army in ukraine is 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 needed now but if and and, and uh, when or if this happens when putin really would need to belarusian army to invade to to to, to be sent to ukraine i'm pretty sure that uh, putin has that many uh, i call them loyalty enforcement instruments uh, to make lukashenko do it that we he 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 would not be able to say no well, thank you, Pavel, for that. That was a fascinating read of fascinating read of, of what's happening at the moment. Can I ask you just two questions quickly? Um, could you sum up? I mean, you've touched on it a little bit, but how has the war impacted on Belarus politically, economically, societally? And, and furthermore, as far as you know, what's the position of the Belarusian public? What's public opinion in regards to the war here? So let's start with the public opinion. Um, this is a very important important issue. Lukashenko lost elections in 2020. He received almost or around 25, maybe 35%. We, we don't know the, the, the exact numbers, as you can imagine, just because they, the elections, they were falsified. While Tikhanovsky won the elections, he received around 50, 55 to 60, 65% in, in the elections if the votes would be count, would have been counted. Uh, and the mood of the society hasn't changed that much. Of course, it is uh, under a great, under a huge uh, totalitarian repression, uh, but uh, people still don't want they 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 don't feel Lukashenko has the right to a legitimate right a legal right to represent them, uh, so they don't support him like actively. But there is of course a part of the society that supports him just because they don't see any other perspective. That uh, they, they they say just because okay we can do anything with him so just, let let just say with what what we have and they are pretty happy that Lukashenko hasn't sent yet his army to Ukraine. They see that Lukashenko is uh, saving them from this perspective. Like uh, if uh, Lukashenko would be not present in the country, then we would be attacked by Russia, like Ukraine is now. Or if he would be too close with Russia, then the Belarusian army would be there. And uh, we have a pretty strong consensus inside the country that shows that Belarusians don't want their army to be uh, uh, to fight. Uh, in in Ukraine, no matter in 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 which side, they just don't want to participate, and and it is around from ninety to ninety five percent of the people. Uh, this doesn't mean that I mean those ninety percent are ultimately pro Ukrainian. This is not true. I think that we have uh, around thirty forty percent of the population that are uh, more pro Russian than pro Ukrainian, while twenty five thirty five percent of the people who are more pro Ukrainian. And since that, we still have to uh, keep in mind that uh, it is extremely, extremely difficult to understand the mood of the society when people 
who comment on Facebook or say in kitchen or say to their friends or to say, I don't know, publicly somewhere that they support Ukraine, they got arrested. We have been having so many cases of the people who say that I, with Ukraine, I stay with Ukraine and they are now in prison, charged with six years in, in, in prison. So this means that when they are called by phone or asked to answer the question in, in, in uh, opinion polls in the internet, they just ignore it. They, they, they don't participate. So so this is a challenging uh, uh, issue to, to tell you what Belarusian society really thinks. I, I can uh, only uh, guess a bit, so I, I, I try to. And, and the second issue, would you please remind me what, what you asked? Just a, I would say just a broad summary in your view of, of, of the last year's impact. Uh, on, on, the on, on the consequences, right. Yeah, yeah, on the consequences. So Belarus, and, and as a state, it has been losing its sovereignty. The more uh, Lukashenko becomes involved in, in the war, the more sanctions uh, are imposed against him, the more dependent Belarus as a society, as a country, and his regime become uh, dependent on Russia. Uh, if previously uh, the foreign trade of Belarus was like 35% uh, in the EU, uh, around 40% to the Russia and to Russia, and around 30% that, that, that came to other states, now we have around 70% of Belarusian uh, export that comes to Russia. Um, a Belarusian export is uh cornered it can't achieve it can't reach their markets in brazil in in india without using the russian territory if previously they were sending the potash fertilizers which brings billions of dollars yearly to the belarusian budget if earlier it came through the territory of latvia or lithuania or poland or ukraine now it is all blocked because of sanctions so lukashenko has to export it through the russian territory which obviously gives Russia more and more influence over him, over more and more control over the Belarusian economy. And this is not only about economy. It, it, it keeps uh, being the same, uh, uh, developing in the same direction politically, uh, in the propaganda, in the information sphere. Lukashenko uh, labeled extremists and even terrorists, all the independent media, uh, so they had to flee the country. Mm, and they work from exile, while inside the country the Russian propaganda is becoming stronger and stronger, just because people are cut off the uh, independent and, and trustworthy information. Uh, people who follow independent media, uh, like Belarusian independent outlets in the internet, or even just reading Telegram channels that say what is happening in, in reality, no, not propaganda stories, even for following them, people are arrested. So they are, of course, afraid. So they, they go to internal immigration uh, and they, 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 they prefer not to uh, believe to anyone. While propaganda is, of course, increasing and, 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 and building more and more leverage over the Belarusian society. And this is a very dangerous scenario. Uh, and, I, and, and I don't see any positive scenario right now without Russia being uh, bitten in Ukraine and without Ukraine's uh, victory there. Pavel, very quickly, a question from me. What would happen to you if you went back to Belarus tomorrow? Uh, I, I think that I would be somewhere in, in jail, maybe, yeah, for 15, I don't know, 20 years tortured there, like it is happening with, with, with all our other political prisoners. They have been tortured every day. Uh, 
and the number of political prisoners is growing. Uh, so it is now around 1,500, and I think that it, it will become growing, and we know maybe half of the real political uh, prisoners, the, the number, because the, the rest... Uh, they just don't, they, they prefer not to say it because of being um, afraid of even more pressure from, from, from the special services. Pavel, hi, Dom here. Thanks so much for, for joining us today. Quickie, if I may, um, Minsk, could Poroshenko have negotiated a better deal or was just, just absolutely backed into a corner and he took, took whatever, whatever he could? And you describe Putin turning up late, not refusing to move out of his coffee room, all that kind of stuff. I mean, do these amateur dramatics actually work or, or, or rather does Putin not realize that, that we just think that it looks a bit silly doing all this stuff and he just comes across as a bit bit juvenile why does he do that thanks yeah starting with the first question about Poroshenko I think the problem with Ukraine was not about Ukraine or only Russia of course Ukraine was trying to defend itself uh, but the, the main problem the the, the biggest problem was that uh, this uh, stance of the European and Western partners, which didn't see what has been happening, uh, what was happening those days as an invasion. They thought that the Crimea is quite a maybe special issue that Russia didn't send their own army, that they just helped the separatists uh, to, to take over the territories of Ukraine. So nobody thought about the, the war as a Russian invasion over Ukraine. There, there were a lot of... Um, uh, in desire, nobody wanted to see it this way. That's why we really lacked, Ukraine lacked the support uh, from the Western uh, society, macroeconomic support, support of uh, supplies of weapons, etc., etc. The same thing we, we are observing now, like Biden in Kiev, uh, leopards that are sent by Germany to Ukraine and, and so on and so forth should have already happened in 2014, when Russia already invaded Ukraine, when it annexed the territory and it has been occupying more and more territories through their proxies uh, in eastern Ukraine. So this was his problem. Not only Russian invasion, uh, not only Russia heavily attacking the, the Ukrainian uh, uh, army and the Ukrainian territory, but the kind of ignorance or uh, undesire of, of the partners of allies to... Uh, to look at the reality, at the new normality. Uh, and that's why in nine years later, they had to. Uh, talking about Putin, I think that our rationality, what you, me, David, and, and other people here, what we understand about what is rational for us would um, uh, highly likely depend very much for, for the guy like Putin, who is a KGB officer who has been in power for so many years and who still believes these lies that are brought him by his uh, generals and, and, and FSB uh, about uh, American control, uh, even that he has been hiding in bunker from the COVID, I think that it hints us about what kind of a person he is. So I think that he sees the situation a bit of differently than, than we see it. We, we see that Russia mm, is not uh, successful enough now in the front and is like pretty pretty obvious for everyone. But I think that Putin can be seen in a different way. Like he is back, he is expecting that the fatigue of support for Ukraine will come. That Russia, uh, Russian economy, it has 
dealing with sanctions pretty efficiently. So it's not collapsing. And then uh, that they have a lot of uh, human and industry resources, military resources, that if they start increasing right now, then in one, two, three years, they will just, uh, uh, in this war of attrition, they will at least... Uh, achieve some of the results. Uh, I think that this explains uh, the, the, this attitude towards the West. He is okay. He, he already understood that he, that he can't capture Kiev and Ukraine uh, very fast, but he still thinks that he can achieve some, at least some of the goals, uh, maybe in the longer term. Thank you very much for your insights, Pavel. This is Francis uh, speaking now. Uh, I just wanted to pick up on something you were saying there about this idea of Western mistakes. And I just wonder, when you were talking earlier about how there was this period of of relative liberalisation in Belarus, what mistakes do you think the West made? Or perhaps a different way of thinking about it, what could the West have done more of in order to keep it more in the Western orbit than the Russian one? Yeah, this is a very important issue, and I, and I should be frank. I don't have a good good answer here. I I, I told you in my first intervention that uh, the West has tried different approaches, sanctions. Uh, it has tried uh, to engage uh, in cooperation with, with the regime, and I think that what we have been having since 2014, since annexation of Crimea till 2020. It brought a lot of the result. So it changed the mood of the society. It changed the society. It, 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 the uh, Belarusian business grew up. The NGOs, the people dependent on, uh, independent from the government, the number uh, uh, increased significantly. Uh, we have been having an IT sphere that uh, was a rich one, and it supported uh, people who were uh, vi- uh, who received the violence from from the government dur- during the protests. So this. Um, uh, solidarity that we saw in Belarus in 2020 is an exact and direct result of this uh, participation of this engagement of Belarus into the EU and Western policies. But in 2020, could the EU and the West just ignore what Lukashenko was doing? Obviously not. I mean, you can't ignore political prisoners. You can't ignore the tortures in prison. You can't ignore the cracking down of the uh, civil society. So I don't see any kind of a alternative, uh, just because uh, uh, the West, the EU, the USA, it has never had that many instruments and then that uh, much of a leverage like Russia had. So Russia has always been leading there. And this is not mostly about uh, mistakes of the West, but because of uh, how uh, deep and how strong is is and 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 was even those days the control from from Moscow. So um, I think that the failure uh, was kind of maybe pre-programmed. Uh, but yeah, if in 2020 we, we imagine that Lukashenko or his uh, alternative candidates, if if we imagine that they just don't come to participate in elections, and we would have the same elections as in 2015, which were extremely uh, calm for him, extremely safe for him, then maybe uh, the, this participation of Belarus in the invasion would never happen. But this is, again, this is nothing uh, the West should be blamed for. This is uh, Lukashenko actions for uh, which he receives all, 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 all those sanctions from, from, from the West right now. Thank you. Just one final question, if I may, which is uh, going back to Minsk. Uh, you 
we're talking earlier about all of the machinations that took place. And I just wondered what, how you think history will judge the Minsk Accords. Of course, there's already been analysis that people are saying that it was, from the Ukrainians' perspective, an attempt to buy time in order to arm for what they felt would be an inevitable invasion of the, of the, the, the rest of the territory. And from Putin's perspective, it was an attempt to solidify his grip on territories illegally seized. So I just wondered what your perspective on how history will look back on that that pretty critical um, diplomatic phase. Yeah, it very much depends on what the result of the invasion of Russia's situation will, will be. Um, if if try to measure it right now, uh, I think that both are true. Uh, Ukraine, yes, it, it received uh, this time to, to be better prepared for the invasion. Uh, but at the same time, Russia prepared the invasion too. I mean, it has been preparing for the, for the war against Ukraine too all, all these years, while not being sanctioned by the West, while uh, the West uh, has been buying uh, the oil and natural gas from Russia and, 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 and doing business as usual. Uh, did Ukraine become and the Ukrainian army become stronger? Obviously, yes. But uh, should it receive all this support that it receives now right after the Russia invaded Crimea? Yes, obviously, but it never happened. Uh, so when we say about Minsk agreements, I think that we should uh, think of them like the um, text that we have there, the content that they signed uh, this night in Minsk was maybe inevitable just because the West was not ready to look uh, at the reality and the new normality and, and, and to see it as an invasion to Ukraine and to give all the support it can give to Ukraine. Uh, while uh, Ukraine, yes, had been had been defending itself, and it was under a bigger threat, much bigger threat, maybe than uh, than now. If Russia would invade it uh, and did the same what it, it did in February twenty twenty four, so the time was bought. But those nine years, they were, I would say, lost. I mean, that the West could have supported Ukraine much more. And maybe this would help us even to avoid uh, the, 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 the invasion. Well, thank you, Dom Francis, uh, for your questions. And thank you so much, Pavel, for joining us. I just want to ask each of you very quickly for your very final thoughts. What will you be looking at and thinking about or would want the listeners to know and understand in the days ahead? Uh, Dom or Francis, who would like to go first? Yeah, I'll just jump in there very quickly. I recommend people look at the Financial Times today, really interesting article about the Munich Security Conference and how it was received from what's termed the Global South, the term that's coming into greater currency, so African, South American, um, uh, South Asian, other areas around, around the world. Leaders there frustrated that the security conference seemed to be dominated by Ukraine, or, or rather the Ukraine is dominating the West's attention and money, and that there's a perceived uh, loyalty test the West is now applying about Ukraine. There are various West, uh, various leaders from uh, uh, the article size leaders from Brazil, Colombia, and Namibia all saying things like um, uh, you know, we can't keep talking only of the war. Um, we don't want to go on discussing who will be the winner or loser of, of a war. Um, and people resolving, we're resolving the problem, not shifting the blame, so on and so forth. So people saying, look, there's other things here. There's climate change. There's all sorts of other bits and pieces. Don't force us to only talk about Ukraine. Don't force us to pick sides. And if that's the only conversation you've got coming coming to me, then don't be surprised if I'm, if I'm less interested in talking to you and perhaps talking to Russia. So today's FT, very good piece. I recommend uh, people have a look. 
Thank you, Dom, and thank you, Francis. Pavel, as our guest, would you like the very final thoughts? Yeah, maybe I, I will be, of course, uh, waiting for what Putin is going to tell us uh, for the anniversary of the invasion. He will be having his speech in uh, two days, if I'm not mistaken, or is it is planned to, to, to tomorrow? So I, I, I just want to see and to analyze what they have been uh, thinking and what they are planning for, for the future. Uh, we have been seeing their... Uh, from the observers that, uh, that that are saying that Russia has already started uh, a new wave of uh, attacking uh, Ukrainian positions in the East. Um, yes, so I think that this is the place where we should uh, uh, put our eye on. And the relations with uh, Russia and Belarus relations. Lukashenko was in Moscow uh, two days ago, uh, and they never commented anything since that day. That's why I obviously receive a lot of requests from media asking uh, whether Lukashenko will invade or not. And I'm uh, repeating them the same things that I have been uh, saying to you right now. But yeah, I think that they will potentially, they, they, they will maybe announce a bit of a more cooperation in the military sphere. Lukashenko already said that he wants to build Su-25 aircrafts for for Russia. Uh, and yeah, uh, this is something very important. And the, the other thing, that the third thing is sanctions. The EU sanctions package that will be uh, and is expected to be imposed on Russia. And there is no consensus from what I know from my insiders uh, in Brussels that uh, mm, there is no consensus on Belarus. So this is another important issue for, 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 for me. Here at The Telegraph, we have a number of other podcasts you may be interested in, one of which is Offscript, a series of no-holds-barred, long-form interviews with world-leading commentators. Stephen Edgington joins me now to talk about a recent relevant episode. Stephen, who did you talk to? I talked to Colonel Richard Kemp, who served in the armed forces, British armed forces, from 1977 until 2006. And we discussed, almost a year on from the war in Ukraine starting, what happened in the war so far and what could potentially happen next. So we talked about the upcoming offensive, the Russian offensive, and Richard Kemp was very downbeat on this. He thinks the Ukrainians could suffer huge losses. And we talked more generally about Ukrainian tactics and Russian tactics. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Where can listeners find the full episode of that? On any podcast app, their favourite podcast app, or on YouTube, on the Telegraph's YouTube page. And it's called Offscript. Off script, yes. So it's long form interviews, about an hour long for each one. And we talk to people from various different backgrounds, whether they're historians, philosophers, politicians, military people, on, on all different subjects. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Stephen. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. 
And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.